This is from Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw the house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The later glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Just put a link over there or something. Well, good morning, church. It's so good to see everybody. What we have is a very powerful passage of Scripture, and I hope that the Lord speaks to your heart and that He directs you in your spiritual life in your pursuit of Christ. I hope that um, after church that we can all stick around and get to know each other better and enjoy each other's company and fellowship around God's Word together. Uh, we've been <clears throat> learning here from the book of Haggai that there's no greater work that we as God church can do to rise up and build his kingdom. We're all here because we have this passionate desire to rise up and build God's kingdom. I think many of us are here for that reason. Perhaps you don't really know where you stand with Christ um, or maybe even understand what his kingdom even means. But I hope that you can um, hear today his words speak to you. In Haggai's day, the Temple of Solomon, this glorious temple, was filled with all of this opulence and gold, um, treasures. You guys have probably seen some fictional movies about f trying to find Solomon's temple because the way the Bible describes it was incredibly captivating, um, lined with gold and silver and all sorts of um, beauty and, and wealth that filled it. And it, it gets destroyed. And Judah is led into captivity through the, the invading nation Babylon. When they return, they start building the foundation of the temple. Uh, the, the, this, um, the, the nation decides, let's let them go back and let, the, let them rebuild the city walls and also the temple. So they, they go back and they start building the foundation of the temple and because of persecution, they stopped and they started paneling their houses. You guys remember we talked about that a few weeks ago. But thanks to this lovely snow it is, that has not stopped snowing. It, and it is, I, I know, it's March 1st today. <laughs> not February 29th. Um, it has just kept snowing, so we've missed some church. And so I just want to give you a little bit of a view of where we've been. We learned that they started rebuilding the temple. And then because of persecution, they stopped. They started paneling the, their houses. They started paying attention to things that were just kind of easy for them to do. No one is going to persecute you for putting in a new Berber rug in your house. But they might if you start preaching for Jesus Christ. So that's exactly what happens. Haggai's challenge, the book of Haggai was to challenge them to, not, to, to continue to preach the gospel, to build the kingdom in other words. The presence of God in their lives and in the lives of Israel. He challenges them to do this. To not be distracted with busy work but to glorify God by building the presence of God in their lives and in their world. And their response was fantastic. It's a response we don't always see in our lives or even in Israel. They actually did it. They obeyed. They repented. And they started building again. Their response was to fear the Lord and to obey. This is all in chapter 1. They, they became more consumed with the glory of God and the presence of God than their fear of man. So they started building. 
And the Lord was with them. It says that in chapter 1. Now in today's text, we see that even after they started obeying God's word through Haggai, that they were again becoming discouraged. So they start building again, but they start becoming discouraged again. In Ezra, when we, when we go to Ezra chapter 3, we learn that Israel had returned to build the temple, and they built the foundation, but stopped because of persecution. But when they started continuing to build the temple again, we learn in Ezra chapter 3 that many of the older men were sad. And in verses 11 through 13, it basically tells us that when the foundation was laid, many people started rejoicing because the temple was being built. But all of these old men that had seen the glorious opulence of Solomon's temple, they were very old, and they were still around though for this rebuilding of the temple, and they just kind of felt it just wasn't quite as good. It wasn't as glorious. It wasn't filled with as much treasure and as much riches. It wasn't even as big. This temple was actually a little bit smaller than the one that they made that King Solomon had built. So they start building, and, and Ezra tells us that all, there's all the sound of rejoicing, but these old men are weeping and crying so loud that you can't even tell the difference between sounds of joy and sounds of weeping. This is Ezra chapter 3. And this is the context of Haggai chapter 2, by the way. Haggai gets them to push through this previous persecution and discouragement. And he says three times, be strong, be strong, be strong. I don't know if you notice that in our text. He keeps saying, be strong, be strong, be strong. Now we can't help but assume that that's probably because they were getting weak. They were feeling discouraged in the work that they were called to do. Now why is that? Why were they getting discouraged? Were that persecutors back? Like those guys in chapter 1 who are making fun of them and their moms, right? And they were like, they were teasing them and going after them and making life difficult. They told the king on them, right? Like, and the king made them stop. That's what we learned last time. And there's all this persecution. Was that, was that happening again? We, we, we basically learned that that's not what happened. How many people know in this room that we have more than one kind of enemy in our life, in the spiritual life? The Bible describes three. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. In, in chapter 1, we see a world opposition. There's all these people trying to get them to stop doing God's work. Right? There's these enemies, there's haters. You guys ever have haters in your life that didn't like the fact that you were a Christian and a Jesus follower? You get some haters, and we've all had that. And I've been a hater to other people too, so let's be fair. But, but, so there's this world opposition, but now that we'd be foolish to think that once one form of opposition kind of quiets down, that there isn't another around the corner. That there isn't another one kind of sneaking around. And, and here we have a flesh opposition. We have the opposition of their own mind. And this time, it's not the world standing up against them. It's themselves. It's their own thinking. And gosh, that's, prob that's usually been my primary enemy in my life. Very rare, I mean, I've had people kind of come up against me, but that, that's been more minor for me in my life. For me, my, my worst enemy has always been right here, between these two ears. <laughs> um, the things that I think, the way I talk myself out of things, and talk myself out of doing great things for God, my fears, anxieties, you name it. So here's this fear, that, um, or, or this, this flesh mentality that comes into them, and we see, in, we see it in them, a very common human complex. The good old days complex. That's what they're going through. These old men are going through a good old days complex. You ever meet someone, a good old days kind of person? Right? Um, nothing in their present life is as awesome as it used to be. <laughs> right? Like, not their family, not sports, right? How about this? You know, like, when I was a kid, I watched basketball. I don't watch basketball anymore, but I was really into it. And in my mind, because I was so into it back then, the greatest time to ever watch basketball was with Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Hakeem Olajuwon. I mean, it was great. But if, if you talk to someone 40 or older, they're going to fight me. Now, oh, no, Larry Bird, they were the greatest. Right? And, I, and I, I'm sure when I'm a, a crusty old curmudgeon, I'm going to argue with someone that Tom Brady was the best core, blah, 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 and you know, it's just football's not the same, the rules are different, and you know, like all these, you have, right? You've been around people like this, sports people? Nothing is ever as good as the glory days, is what it used to be. How about this? Oh, laptops, iPods. I had a cup of coffee with my friend when I was a kid. Those were the good old days when you could sit down and have a cup of coffee with them. 
oh, life's good now. You know, I got kids, I got grandkids, but when I was in college, I played football, and that was the best time of my life. Right? The good old days, the good old days mentality. Now, those are kind of, kind of funny illustrations, but what about tragedy that you reflect on in your life? When you had something near and dear to your life, something wonderful, and it just all fell apart. Things that shouldn't happen to us because of sin. Sin enters our lives or other people's lives and things just fall apart. Right? We had something great and wonderful and it fell apart. And we think that, we look at our lives now and we think, well, I'm just reserved to this second best life. It's okay, I guess, but it's just not as good as it used to be. Now, I've, I've been like that. And I think we've all fallen into this trap. And it's so important to our spiritual lives collectively as a church, and for you individually, wherever church you might go to, to know and to be convinced of the fact that this is a trap, that it is a lie, and it is a very dangerous way to live your life. It's not to say that we scorn our past and the good times that we've had in our past. We don't look back and disparage those moments. But when we scorn our present, when we think that somehow our lives aren't as good as they used to be because of our past, then we're, gonna never, we're never going to live in God's grand vision for our lives now in the present. Did you hear that? Now, I, I struggle with this sometimes, the, the, this good old days mentality. Now, I, I know, I think all of you, most of you I've known for a very long time. Some of you are kind of, I find the older I get in my life, um, that like I, I have different histories with different people, depending on who I'm talking to, right? The, for, for many of you, I've known you for a very long time. And, and a lot of my history is your history too, as far as church and the spiritual life, because we've known each other for so long. Now, I, I was saved in 1995, so for me, the glory days, the good old days, if I'm ever going to look at my life and compare it to any other good time in my life, it would be, in the, it would be then, it would be in the 90s. Everything, for me, I look back at that time, I was coming alive spiritually, I had these teachers that I loved, everything was working and gelling, I was going on missions trips, all these things were so cool, everything was working, right? And it just fell apart. It just hit the fan. <laughs> right? Everything fell apart and became a mess. And I slowly, as a consequence, I, in my mind started, well, I can't walk away from Jesus but I just had this subtle feeling of scorn for my present condition. Like, it's alright, but it's not what it was. So I'll keep going, I'll keep doing it. The Jesus thing and the church thing. And I was in school still, I went to seminary still, but it was just like, it's just not what it was. <clears throat> Certain people, friends, teachers, they were missing that were inspired me. And I just kind of sort of muscled through life. Muscled through the spiritual. Have you ever been there? I won't look if you raise your hand. <laughs> I'll keep going, but it's just not the same. Not like, what, not like what it was. And I lived like that for a while. And to be honest, I'm not going to say that I never have those moments where I, that, that kind of sneaks in again. Where I start feeling like that. That good old days type of mentality. Now if you've reserved in your life to live with what will never compare to what you had... It will destroy you. And it will destroy the kingdom work that you can do. And it will destroy us. It will kill marvelous wonders and works that God in your life right now could do. But because you're reserved to think that nothing will ever be as good or ever compare to what you had before... You say, well, I'm kind of a new Christian. I don't really know what you're talking about. Well, this isn't just Christian stuff. This isn't just the spiritual life stuff. Because we do this, and everyone does this in their lives. Right? That girl that, that, that I wanted, or that guy that I wanted, and they said no. Or the job that I wanted, that I had, that was great, and now I'm in this stupid job that I hate. Right? So, like, here, here everybody does this. So what do we do with that? How do we move on? How do we press on? Are we in the, the, the B plan? The second best? Are we all just kind of reserved to that? Or do we see in the, the plan B's of our lives that, that it's actually God's plan A, and it always is, and he wants to use us in profound and incredible ways and he's getting our attention. I think it's that, personally. <clears throat> that former glory, 
something from your past has become a mess. But that mess has been allowed by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and Creator of everything to lead to a greater glory. A greater glory. A better one. That's what our text says. That the mess of life has been orchestrated by God himself to lead you to a greater future than your past. That's the word. That's the promise. That's exciting. (laughs) We build more than we see. That's the title of this message. We build, and I stole it from John Piper. Thank you, John. (laughs) This is exactly what happened to the hearts of of our spiritual ancestors here. They started building again, right? They started working, but they started seeing what they were doing and comparing it to their past glories and thinking it just wasn't as good. And Haggai's message is simple to them. You build, he doesn't say it like this, but this is the basic, con- the basic concept. You build more than you see, more than you know. And we're going to see that um, in our, the rest of our sermon today. The remnant of Israel had started to lose heart because of their reflection on the former glory of the temple. <clears throat> and and Haggai, Haggai's message to them was take heart, be encouraged, be strong, work, because you build more than you see. There is a greater glory coming. So today in our sermon, we're going to take a look at the source of their discouragement and their source of renewed courage. And friend, I hope that if you're feeling discouraged today, that you can have some renewed courage by the word of God as you hear it. In verse 2, Again, it says, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Who is there? Stand up, he says. Stand up, old men, who's been around for a while and seen God do great things. Stand up and raise your hand. Because now you see what you do as nothing because of past glories. And these were the old men in Ezra's day. The the old men in Haggai's day who saw the former glory of Solomon's temple. It was glorious. It was fantastic. It was, as we said before, it was filled with gold and precious. And and more importantly than that, it was filled with the glory of God himself. When Solomon's temple was done being built, the Bible says that the Lord himself filled the temple with smoke. So much smoke that anyone who was in the temple had to run out of the temple because God was there. And they knew this. They remembered it. Now I want you to think of, some, some of you who can kind of relate with me, what you think your life should have been. Those glory days. But those, those moments in your life where you had something that you loved and cherished, and it's different now, it's gone. I want you to kind of hold on to that, because this message is for you. Who was there, in other words, who was there who saw this house in its former glory? So friend... What is your former glory? What is that thing in your life that you just kind of see your present life is just not as good as it used to be? Who was there? Stand up. Notice that he says it was glorious. He doesn't say, oh, that, you know, that was nothing. It didn't really count. It didn't really matter. No, it was great. So we don't look at our past and say, you know, that, we don't look at our, you know, sometimes there are are people um, that are the opposite. Right? They don't look at their past as greater. Everything's always in the future that'll be better. Their life has always been bad. <laughs> but if I had this thing, it's basically doing the same thing but in reverse. Right? If I had this thing, then I would be happy. And you just kind of add these trinkets to your life and you think that then you'd be okay. So he says, um, but what about now? You look at, the pa- at your past glory. What about now? So he asked these old men this question. Who was there to see the glorious Solomon's temple? Stand up. Now what about now? How do you see it now? Not so glorious. They're weeping over where they're at because they wish that they were back where they came from. It's nothing. He says, is it as nothing in your eyes? The implication is like, yeah. They just kind of saw it as nothing in their eyes. How do you see your work now? 
We've all, now, now many of us, I kind of look around and I know that many of us, if not all of us, have come out of something that, as far as church is concerned, that looks much different than where we're at now. Right? We, we all came out of a very large church with lots of things to do. Lots of programs. And they were good things. It was, it was a great place. But now we're in this little room. Right? With not as many chairs that are kind of old because we got them used. And we're in this, where are we? Riverside? How did we end up here? <laughs> right? So like we can look at our situation and we all kind of have a similar past. Where did we, what do we look at? How do we see it now? How do we see our work now? Your perception of your life and God's work will determine your usefulness in his kingdom purpose. If you see yourself and what you do right now, no matter where you are, by the way, not just here, as just insignificant and not worth a whole lot, then it won't be. But if you see God in it, he'll do great things with you. If you think the best is past, it will be past. That's what I'm trying to say. If you think that the best is past, it will be. Do you see your current work has nothing because of some past mountaintop experience? And we all do that with our mountaintop. Even, even um, the Apostle Peter, when he saw Jesus peel back his flesh, reveal to him his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And you know what he said? Let's stay up here. Let's live up here. Let's build some tents. That's what, that's what Peter said. We all tend to idolize certain mountaintop experience. Um, that we have, and we think like it's just going to be passed. If we move, on, if we move on, we'll lose it. We'll never get it back. We see it, you know. Do we see what we do as nothing because there are bigger churches than ours with more more programs with better preachers? <laughs> I don't think that's possible. <laughs> if you see your work as nothing now, you're going to take that attitude with you. By the way, you can say like, "Oh, if I go over there, then life will be better." Well, you're going to take that with you there, too. It won't be as good there, either. It's an attitude that we've formed, because to be quite frank, we have just not believed God. We've not trusted in the promises and power of God. The solution, then, is to believe God. Our hearts will rise up if we truly believe that we build more than we see. Oh, bummer, that's me. I'm that guy. I'm the, I'm the grass is greener guy on the other side, the glory days kind of guy. I'm the one in that slump. Well, you're in good company. We've all been there. Friend, I say to you that these, what, what was said to these brave souls, take courage. Today's a new day. In order to take courage, I think we need to tap into a few things that we see in our, our text. It's their source of renewed courage. We need to believe that the strength available to us is number one, a complete strength, number two, a corporate strength, and number three, a reasoned strength. So, excuse me, Haggai tells these discouraged men to take courage, to be strong. And here's how he does it. First, by emphasizing that it is a complete strength, number two, a corporate strength, and number three, a reasoned strength. So let's look at a complete strength, and this is in verse four. He first emphasizes that the strength available to you is complete. The Israelites were told to be strong three times in verse 4. Be strong, be strong, be strong. Now, sometimes we can read things like this and we just think maybe he's just being poetic or repetitious or whatever. But in the Bible, this is actually um, an intentional way of emphasizing the complete nature of a thing. Um, one, one author noted the instruction, be strong, was given to Moses successor Joshua. You remember when, when Moses was in, uh, about to die and Joshua was taken over, Moses' message to Joshua was be strong. Or was it Joshua's message to the Israelites? I think it was that. Be strong. Here we have the same guy, Joshua, right? Same name. <clears throat> and the, the first entry to the promised land and the re-entry in Haggai's time was the same message, be strong. So when Joshua was entering into the land, he was told, be strong. Now they got, they got taken away into captivity, and now they're going back in again, and it's the same message, be strong. Both Joshua's acted on the word of the Lord to be strong, and so inherited God's promises. And in both situations, although God strengthened the people, it was up to them to apply their effort as he directed. 
The same partnership is required today in God's service. That we need to take that command to be strong and apply it to our lives. We need to note here that God's work requires courage and strength. If we don't have it, we're going to buckle. We're not going to do it. We're not going to continue. The Lord doesn't tell his people, hey guys, you know, you really don't need courage or strength because the Christian life is easy. It's a cakewalk. It's a piece of, <laughs> it's a piece of cake. No, that's not what he says. He says it's, di it's difficult. You need courage and strength. But the courage available to, to, to us is not a courage of our own. It's a courage that comes from God himself. Three times the Lord says, be strong. In Hebrew, to repeat something three times is to emphasize its fullness, its absolution, its completion. That's why you hear in scripture, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So the strength available to you from God himself is a full strength. It's a complete strength. It's a strength that cannot be taken away from or added to because it comes from God himself. So the Lord reminds the Israelites here that there is a strength available to us when we say yes to God, when we obey. And we, and we take that courage and we go on. He gives us that courage. It reminds me of Philippians 4 where it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace that comes from God himself, that will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's this peace, this strength that comes from God himself that when we have faith and we obey surrounds our own thinking in our minds. Amen. We second need to believe that the strength available to us is a corporate strength. Be strong in verse 4. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all you people. You know that it's just as important for you to be strong as it is for me to be strong? You know that we need each other's strength? <laughs> a lot of times we're, we're broken, and, and that's all right. You know, we go through something in life and we're weak. You know, and we need our brothers and sisters in Christ to kind of compensate for that weakness. Sometimes I am. Sometimes I'm a mess. <laughs> Believe it or not. Sometimes the pastor, the pastors, have this brokenness in them. And he needs his people to be strong. And I know we, we always kind of like flip that and we think, well, the leaders, they always got to be strong. They got to be the ones to, to never show any signs of weakness. Well, I'm the wrong guy for you then. <laughs> because I get weak. I have doubts in myself. I have anxieties that come in. You know, like it just happens to me. But so the Bible says here, but the Bible, the Bible commands me, right? What does it say? It says it's a corporate, it's a corporate participation of strength. Right? It says, Joshua, be strong. Zerubbabel, be strong. So leaders, be strong. People, community, be strong. We need each other to, ha to, to have that strength when one of us is weak. Right? It's important for all of us to take heart the call to be strong and to be courageous. The leaders are to do it and the people are to do it. And this strength that we draw from God is a shared strength. Isn't that encouraging? It's a shared strength that there are times in your life where you're just weak and you don't have it. And you have brothers and sisters around you that do have it and they help you through it. The, the leaders, the people, they were called to have this strength to take courage. The strength we draw from is a shared strength. And thirdly, it's a reasoned strength. There's a reason that we can have courage in the work that we do for the Lord. There's a good reason that we should not fear our enemies, that we should not scorn our present because of our glorious past, and it's first because the Lord is with us in verse 4. We talked a lot about that last time, so I'm not going to say too much more about it this time. The Lord is with us in verse 4. We have a strong partner in the work that we do. That he has not abandoned us. He is with us. You look at your situation and your life and you think, it doesn't feel like God is with me right now. It just doesn't feel like that. Everything's falling apart. You know the Bible says that the Lord is near to those with a broken heart? That the times in your life where you feel like you're just bleeding out and the bleeding is just not stopping, the Bible says that it's at those moments where I'm very close to you. Right? And, I, and I, I've known that in my life. The, the deepest, hardest trials that I've endured in my life have been also the sweetest moments of intimacy with Jesus. He uses those moments 
to not only heal us, but teach us something about himself. You know, uh, someone once said that God will not use you greatly until he hurts you deeply. Oh, I don't like that. <laughs> why can't it be different? Why, why can't it be God will only use you greatly um, if he gives you lots and lots of money? <laughs> God will only use you greatly if he gives you everything you've ever wanted. Why does it work the opposite? I don't know that I know the answer to that question, but I do know this. It worked the same for Jesus. Jesus wasn't the exception. The things didn't work out for Jesus because he got everything he wanted. He sweat drops of blood and asked God, is there another way? He didn't want to be, to be tortured and to die the way that he died. But he said, not my will, but thy will. So he goes through that same crucible. He, went, he goes through the same crucible we go through in life. He shares the pain we go through. And it leads to glory. So God is with us in those moments where we think he's not there. He is mostly there. He's not mostly there. He is, he is more present in your life, or at least in your perception, than in times past. The second reason for our strength is that we have a covenanted outcome in verse 5. Now that's kind of like a fancy word. Let me just explain it. The work of God grows. So when God begins his work in Genesis, it doesn't slow down over time. It gains momentum and fulfillment over time. Does that make sense? So when God begins his work, as time progresses, it doesn't get thwarted or tripped up or become less great. It's the opposite. It becomes more and more great. It gets built upon. Promises get fulfilled. It's leading somewhere, somewhere glorious. We have a covenanted outcome means that the work of God is growing and it is gaining momentum. Today in 2015, we are closer to the fulfillment of God's promises than we were in 1015. Okay? And everything in between these past thousand years is leading towards what God's intention is for human history. To believe that the best is past counteracts that idea, right? If you think that your best is past, the spiritual best is past, then you're basically telling God that his system isn't working. It's not progressing. It's basically telling God that your promises aren't going to be fulfilled. If you really believe that the best is past, wouldn't that have to be the case? Wouldn't it have to be that somehow Jesus might not return now? But if he is returning, and God is faithful, and he's in it, then it has to mean that the best is forward. Right? That it's going to increase and gain momentum, and God is going to do greater things than he did before. Amen? That's what it has to mean in my mind, at least the way I read scripture. We have a covenanted outcome to believe that the best is past is to depend not on God for our current vitality, but a particular person or expression of God's work. Did you hear that? To believe that the best is past is to depend not on God in your present, but a person or a group of people to be present in your life. Like we need a person, or a particular church, or a particular group of people, or a particular set of circumstances for God's work to actually be powerful. Isn't that basically saying that that group is God? Isn't it? And they're not. I'm not. You're not. So if all of us tomorrow fold it up and say, you know what, forget it Jesus, we're out of here. You know what he's going to do? He's going to rise up stones to preach the gospel and do something great in our world. That's what he's going to do. Greater than what he's done before. Now I've, I've sometimes heard people say, and I've said this myself, what's America going to do without Billy Graham? Have you ever heard anyone say that? What's America going to do without Billy Graham? Uh, <coughs> hello? What's America? I, I love Billy Graham. I don't, I, I don't mean to disrespect Billy Graham. He's a great man, but he is not the glory. Jesus Christ is the glory. He's, Jesus Christ is the one coming in his kingdom and in, in his fullness. He's the one that m gave Billy Graham the breath in his lungs to speak his own word. 
Okay? We don't trust in Billy Graham and we don't trust in each other. We trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to fulfill what he has promised to us because we have a covenanted outcome. Jesus did not say that when Billy Graham dies or that person that you really look up to leaves that, oh, this, everything's just going to fall apart. The church closes and things won't be the same. No, Jesus makes a promise to us, a covenant to us. Israel was to remember that God himself, who cannot lie, had covenanted to Israel that he would establish his presence in this earth forever and ever. And just because Nebuchadnezzar came into Israel and messed it up seemingly for a little while didn't mean that it wasn't still leading in that direction. And that's what we get to participate in. The kingdom of God coming. Doing something amazing in our world today. That's what we get to participate in. They were to remember, as we are, that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable in the book of Romans chapter 11. It's a pledge coming to us from a God who does not lie and it cannot fail. And by the way, does not depend on you or me for it to be fulfilled. It depends on God's faithfulness. Jesus said the stones will cry out if you don't. Because he will do it. But we just get that awesome privilege to say, alright God, I don't, I don't want you to use a stone. I want you to use me. And when you do that, he uses you. In amazing ways. And that's the pledge. It's the promise that comes to us. His spirit remains in our midst in verse 5. His spirit remains in our midst. And we're on this um, reason strength. The second reason for our strength, as I said, we have a covenanted outcome. Also, that his spirit remains in our midst in verse 5. You know, when the preacher dies, the spirit's there still. You know, when the preacher falls and fails and sins, the spirit's there. You know, when there are church splits, the spirit's there. The spirit remains in your midst. When you fail, when you lose it, the Spirit's there. The kingdom work that we do is done in the midst of the Holy Spirit of God. We have to remember that. This text reassures these folks. Now this is an amazing point, and don't miss this. This text reassures these folks that in spite of their failure to be courageous, that he was still in their midst. They were losing it. They were falling apart. You know, and God didn't be like, okay, trap floor, you're out, let's get some courageous people. <laughs> he says, alright, you guys are being weak, you're being scared, you're being anxious, take courage. He doesn't drop the, uh, the anvil on their heads. He gives them another chance to see the glory of God and the power of God. To rest in his covenanted outcome, in his presence, that the Spirit was there. His presence, that the, the Holy Spirit was there. And he gives us another chance. So you've been weak. You are weak. Join the club. Get in line. So have I. But today's a new day. The Holy Spirit is present. He is in our midst. And he gives us another chance. The Lord doesn't abandon us when we fail to be perfect all the time. Because if he did, then the church would collapse. Because none of us are perfect all the time. His spirit endures and is with us. Finally, the reason <clears throat> for our courage and strength is in verses 6 through 9 that we build more than we see. We've kind of hinted on this a little bit, but let's read it again. In verse 6, it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens. So here we got some prophecy. Okay, so let me just kind of explain this a little bit before we start reading the text. Here we got some prophecy. He's saying, You guys are building my kingdom right now. This was an actual event in human history. He said, Here's what you're actually doing, though. What you're doing in your mind is you're building a building, a stone temple. But you don't realize that that's connected to something greater that's going to happen in the future. Right? So he's telling them to not compare what they're building to the past, but to what it will be in the future. Does that make sense? 
Because that's the development, we just said that a moment ago, that's the development of God's promises, how it gains momentum and is ultimately fulfilled in the return of Jesus Christ. So here he's saying, here's what you're really doing. You don't get it, you don't realize it right now because it seems small to you. It doesn't have as much gold as Solomon's temple, but here's what you're really building. And this is the prophecy in verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, you once more in a little while, I, excuse me, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory says the Lord of hosts the silver is mine the gold is mine declares the Lord the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the, f- the former says the Lord of hosts and in this place I will give peace declares the Lord one, ri- one writer said this the people's unfavorable comparison of the temple that they were building with Solomon's temple was counteracted by God's assurance of ultimate success because of the future. There was something coming. The temple Christ would establish when he returns. Friend, the hope of Christ's return has to fuel everything that we do or we'll always be comparing it to stuff in the past. The hope of Jesus coming back the same way he left has to be our ultimate vision. Because if it's not, then we're always going to be comparing it to other things that seem better than what we're doing now. If we don't connect what we're doing to that moment that will occur in the future, we will grow weary. The source of our courage is to remember that Jesus is returning. When Jesus returns, the Bible says, and where are you getting the return of Christ in that passage? Well, because in Joel, Joel tells us that when Jesus returns, the earth and the sky will tremble. This is a prophecy in Haggai of the return of Christ. When you say Jesus came once to die for our sins, but the Bible teaches that he's coming back. And that's what we're looking at right now. And Joel, when Jesus returns, the earth and the sky trembles. And it's to this event that Haggai refers when he says, I will shake the heavens, and I will shake the earth, and I will shake the sea and the dry lands, and I will shake the nations. When Christ returns, he will shake the nations when he gathers them in one final battle. And it is here that he will conquer those nations with a sharp sword that comes from his mouth. Listen to Zechariah chapter 14. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem. When your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. But I will gather the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. So how do we know this hasn't happened already in some point in human history? Because the Lord has never fought a battle like this before, as we'll see. The Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. So we know that the Lord is actually coming back. That's how we know this hasn't happened yet. Because Jesus has not stood on the Mount of Olives and destroyed the nations yet. So we know that this is a future event. This is the return of Christ. The Lord will go out and he will fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. Revelation chapter 19, we have the same image of the return of Christ. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. This is Jesus Christ. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. This is Christ. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Imagine this, folks, because this is me and you. This is a literal event that will happen. The Bible says that when Jesus returns from heaven to this earth, that the armies of God are behind him. And the reason we know that this is us is because they're clothed in white. That's why this is an angels. White in scripture is a depiction of righteousness, a foreign righteousness that has come onto us. He's only saved us. He hasn't saved angels. So here we are standing on nothing when Jesus returns to take this world back. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that so much cooler than the car you want? (laughs) Isn't that so much better? Isn't that worth 
getting made fun of for? Isn't that worth going through annoying, we have to leave this place because of the least blah blah blah? Who cares? Because we're coming back with the Savior, with the King, with the Lord. And he's doing his work. Now let's, let's continue. He's dressed in a robe. I already read that. The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. So here we have these other passages of scripture that are describing how Jesus is going to shake the nations, how we learned about in Haggai. When Christ returns, he will reign on the earth, earth and all of the nations that once opposed him and fight against him will come to worship him. So this is the amazing image of the future. When Jesus re returns, all of the nations are going to be mad and try to kill him. When they lose, which they will, by the way, with his word, imagine millions and millions of armed armies with missiles and guns and jets going after Jesus Christ and he silences it all with his word. The stars in the heaven, the billions and billions of galaxies, the Bible said, were created with his powerful word. We think that we can take an Uzi and shoot it at him and beat him. <laughs> he silences it with a word and destroys the nations. And here's what Zechariah 14, there are survivors we learn in Zechariah 14, verse 16, the survivors from these nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king. Isn't that incredible? That I was, when Jesus, th there are going to be people when Jesus returns that will go to war with Jesus. Some of them will live and turn into worshipers of Christ. Isn't that unbelievable? But isn't, what we say, how could he let them do that? They were throwing grenades at him. Why would Jesus let them, well, don't we throw grenades at Jesus? Maybe not an actual grenade, but weren't we, didn't we at one time in our life hate Jesus and hate God? Yeah, I never hated Jesus, hated God. We didn't worship him though. We, we were interested in it. We wanted everything else but him. And in the same, in, in, in a similar sense, we, we were God's enemy, but he rescued us and he loved us. He gave us another chance. So here's these people that go to war with Jesus that he allows to live and they worship him on a renewed earth. That's incredible. The survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord, to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And this complements our text. I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. Right? So here it is. God is promising these few people, this remnant, that the temple that they were building was more than they saw. They didn't realize what they were building. When Christ returns to establish his kingdom rule over this earth, he will fill his temple with his glory and the nations will come and worship him. Beautiful. This image of Jesus in the church. You say, what does that have to do with us? We'll get to that in a moment. The presence of the Lord, the same presence of God that filled Moses' temple and Solomon's temple, this glory would enter into the temple that Haggai was building in two ways. Number one, through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself at his first coming would walk into this very same temple. And he would... They're basically, basically being told, do you realize that the Messiah is coming? And he's coming into this temple. And he's going to destroy it and raise it up in three days. Do you realize that? That's the privilege. That's what you get to be a part of. The temple Haggai was building when Jesus, the temple of God, entered it in Luke chapter 2. And then a future temple that we would see Jesus come to at his second coming in Ezekiel chapter 43. And this temple, uh, also the, the, the temple present when Christ returns to establish his kingdom on this earth. Okay? The temple Haggai and the people were building, in spite of the workers' belief that it lacked the splendor of Solomon's temple, would, according to our text, have a greater glory. They were building more than they could see. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the, the former, says the Lord of hosts. This again because the Lord himself, the Christ, would enter into this temple. 
And ultimate, the ultimate fulfillment of this greater glory is when Jesus returns, sets up his kingdom, and establishes his presence, which is the temple, his presence on this earth forever and ever. Amen? By building this temple, the people would help. By building this temple in this moment in human history for Haggai and for these people, they were involved in the momentum of God's kingdom presence, and that increased momentum of what God, what it was ultimately leading towards the return of Christ to reclaim this earth as its king. So their work was more than just merely laying a foundation. And putting cement in. It was a spiritual work that would lead and culminate in God's presence and rule on this earth. The latter glory will be greater than the former. And friend, our involvement in that story, that grand story, is the same today as it was for Haggai. We're just some millennia past it. And we're building that same temple when we build the kingdom of God. And we're leading towards that same grand vision when Jesus returns. We build more than we see, friend. Here's the promise. Believe it. There is no glory former in our lives that will ever compare to the return of Christ and what he will do in our lives. And we can participate in it now or we can scorn it. And we can lay, a, lay down our toolbox and we can panel our houses or we can participate in what God's doing in this world. All of our kingdom work, all of it, past, present, and future, is just as glorious as, as the past, as the present, as the future. But it's all leading to the greatest glory when Jesus returns. When the sun returns, when Jesus reigns, when tears are dried, when death is no more, when his kingdom comes on this earth and is once and for all established forever. <laughs> we build more than we see. That's what we participate in. Do you realize that the child whose heart has trusted in Jesus that you influence is going to be in that robe, standing on nothing with Jesus when he comes to be present on this earth forever? Do you realize that he's going to be there? That's not nothing. Do you realize that when you give a cup of cold water to someone thirsty that you give it to King Jesus himself. That what we build now by his spirit is leading us somewhere much much greater. Amen? The final restoration of all creation under Christ's kingly rule. That's where it's leading us. The final restoration of all creation under Christ's kingly rule. We are building more than we see. Remember that. Believe it. The former glories of our spiritual lives are not to be compared which, with what lies ahead. The best is yet to come. Take courage. Be strong. You build more than you see. Amen? Okay. We turn now to communion to remember.